0: Welcome, welcome, welcome to another installment of Workplace Therapy. My name is Scott Arrieta. I'm the founder and CEO of Unity & Company. Um, it's a consulting firm that leverages a strategic understanding of human experiences to help organizations unlock best-in-class business performance. Um, I'm joined today by my co-host, Skylar Lewandowski. She's our director of special programs at Unity and Company. She's also one of our senior consultants that specializes in DEI and leadership development. And today we're going to be talking about two of the most dreaded words that a leader can hear, change management. Now, most jobs are ever-changing. It's really the only constant. Um, We have to improve efficiency. We have to get a new vendor. We have to go after a new customer. We have to launch a new feature. And yet, despite how ubiquitous change is in our work lives, we still just fucking suck at it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I, I don't think this is just at work either. I think we all struggle with the paradox that change, like you said, is the only constant. We want routine and stability and then we get immediately like stuck and we want something new and exciting. And I think we generally like change when we're the ones controlling it. um, But I guess that's a control issue, not really a change issue. (laughs) But I think with change in our jobs, we're rarely the ones who have made that decision which makes us feel slighted and like something was taken away from us. I mean, usually most change management is done instantaneously from the employee perspective. You get a like ominous like invite for a meeting <laughs> an hour before to the whole team with a subject line that says like team update and you have like no time to even process like what change is even coming.
0: Yeah. Oh my God. I've been there so many times where like my Slack blows up the second that an invitation is sent out um, and there's something vague like team update or company all hands, but like the company all hands took is like 24 hours from now. (laughs) You're like, or even worse, like intraday, like the company all hands is like three hours from now. And it's like, everybody's like, oh my God, is this the next wave of layoffs? Like, are we losing like a senior member of our leadership team? Like, Um, Yeah, it can be, it can be really traumatic. Um, And here's, here's the thing, Skylar, and like, you've probably known this because you've worked very closely with executive teams throughout your career. You've been, you've worked really very closely with HR functions and so have I. And here's the thing that I think a lot of leaders really don't understand or really don't put enough value or weight on. So most change isn't as kind of knee-jerk reactive as it feels to 90% of the company, right? And that's because most companies at least put a little bit of thought into large sweeping changes that will affect everybody in the organization. And so- more likely what's been happening is there's a small group of people who have been talking about the need to change and designing the change that's actually going to happen. And they've been doing that for days or weeks or months before any announcement, big or small, is made to the rest of the organization. And like, this is a mistake. And I think like leaders do this with maybe the best of intentions or maybe like, you know, I guess like if I'm being generous, I'd say that they're doing it with good intentions, but I do think that there's an aspect of avoidance and awkwardness and like not wanting to actualize the conflict too early. And so there's a level of fear that leaders, that prevents leaders from um, from engaging in the level of communication and collaboration that they should engage in, in order to make changes go smoothly. And like to illustrate this and the importance of it, um, I'll, I'll introduce you all to a concept that I learned when I was studying change management earlier in my career, um, which is this idea of the Kubler-Ross change curve model. Um, so Skylar, have you heard of the Kubler-Ross change curve?
1: I feel like the only time I've heard about it, it's like similar to grief processing, Right.
0: Right. Right. It's it exactly is the grief oh, processing curve. Okay. <laughs> so like everybody, everybody's heard of that, right? Like, I mean, it's become so ingrained in pop culture, right? But basically it was invented in 1969 um, by a Swiss American psychiatrist, Elizabeth Kübler ross um, And it depicts five stages of grief. So there's denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. Right. And, um, And like where you are on the curve can fluctuate and move, you know, depending on like how you're processing things. Um, And so our intent is not really to get into the psychology of it all, but just to kind of illustrate the fact that when we are going through a significant change, in our lives that kind of alters the way that we approach our lives and work is a significant part of our life. So any change at work fits that description to a T. There is this curve that we go through before we are fully kind of like accepted, um, or before we have our heads wrap around that idea. And, um, And that's what this is really trying to communicate. And so when we as executives and when we as leaders are planning change, and we've been talking about it for months, we have in a closed room environment gone through all of those stages of grief. We've been in denial. We have bargained. We've been angry, right? And eventually, by the time we're ready to launch the change, most of that team is in the acceptance phase. But there's a problem which is that nobody else is in the acceptance phase and they all have to go through all of those stages of grief before they get to the acceptance phase at the end. And that is where companies don't do a great job of supporting their people through the very natural progression of emotions that happen when a change is announced. And so, you know what, Skylar, this really reminds me of like one of my favorite books. It was written a while ago. Um, It's called Switch by Chip and Dan Heath. And um, and it's all about change management, how to change when change is hard. And the reason I love this book is because, you know, rather than being like a really boring (laughs) business book with a lot of business principles, they kind of like boil everything down to a metaphor that's like really memorable. And so the metaphor that they introduce is this idea of a rider sitting on top of an elephant. And in this metaphor, the elephant, is it represents your emotions, right? And the writer represents kind of your logic and your executive functioning. And right off the bat, I think that's a powerful metaphor because we've talked about before on this podcast about how, for some reason, the expectation of professionalism in a work environment is that we have no elephant. We are a hundred percent writer. We have no emotions. You leave your emotions at the door. You come in and in order to be professional, you have to be this completely anesthetized version of yourself with no emotional capacity whatsoever. And really that's just a selfish perspective. That's like, you're easier to handle if you don't have emotions. And so I'm expecting that of you. Right. But the reality is, is we can't separate ourselves from our emotions. And not only can we not separate ourselves from our emotions because it makes us human, but Those emotions have an outsized impact on the direction that we are headed. Like if you think about like a rider on top of an elephant, that elephant is going to go wherever the hell it wants to go. Right. It's like, you know, the writer has some influence. Right. And especially if the writer is invested in training the elephant. Right. You know, then the writer can have even more influence and be more disciplined. Right. So that's the analogy for people who have done some work on themselves, have gone through self-discovery and have learned how to regulate their emotions. But even people who have put years of investment into that can't control, can't fully control the elephant right? It's still going to go wherever it wants to go. And so we ignore the elephant to our own detriment, right? And on the flip side, like, I don't want to be all doom and gloom, but the other thing is, is emotions are a powerful force for good. If you can engage the elephant, if you can engage emotions and really get people bought into an idea, they will run through and knock down walls for you, right? And they will do it willingly and ably. But yet we are literally ignoring the elephant in the room from a business perspective. And like I said, I think it's just completely... Um, to our detriment. So Skylar, I mean, now that I've kind of set you up with a lot of, um, a lot of metaphors here, do you, um, do you have any examples from your experience where major change has been implemented, but they just completely ignored the emotional impact or the elephant?
1: Yeah, they definitely literally ignored the elephant in the room. I love it. <laughs> 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 I, I can, I feel like every big change that has happened, uh, the companies that I've been of have—I could say this as an example. Um, I'll share one that the change was, in my mind, a really good change and a needed one. And even with that, I struggled with it. And I was—I was working in HR at the time, mm. uh, and so the company needed to have a new HRIS system, which is a very common problem. The company is growing. You have to implement this or else, you know, your whole organization just kind of goes away. Uh, So it was going to create efficiency across the organization. It was going to keep the employee data much safer. It was going to, in a lot of cases, provide more features than the current software that the teams were using. But the way that they rolled it out was just like, this is pragmatic. This is going to create efficiency. This is it. Here you go. This is best in class. And people reacted really poorly. It was like pulling teeth. We couldn't get people in the room to discuss the transition. We had to pay you know, consultants so much money just to try to get people on board. And even the consultants were like, this is <laughs> really bad because people are just so against this change. And mm. I feel like people resisted to the point where they didn't put in the effort to like come up with, oh, you know, watch out for this during the change. And so it made the transition basically like a house on fire situation every single minute of the change when really it was a good change and it needed to be done. And it could have, if if I think the leadership had just said, you know what, this is a really tough change and this is like going to be what's good for the company, but like let's some come together and like say you know, our feelings and say like this is going to be a frustrating process. Cause I think they approached it too, like this is going to be quick and easy and like nothing's going to matter. And it was like, nope, <laughs> that's never the change. That's never the the uh you know how it happens with a new HRS system. So
0: a hundred percent. You know, it reminds me of, you know, one of the more surprising aspects of change management that I learned about early in my career, which is the importance of um communicating the expectation that some sort of failure is inevitable, right? And it's like, that feels feels like hard to even say, right? Because like we are conditioned to believe that it's like, nope, we're turning a blind eye to failure. We're not even letting it enter our mind, right? We are gonna power through and it's gonna be successful. And so I think, you know, trying to extend the benefit of the doubt to the leaders at the company that you were working with at the time Um, I think maybe they thought they were approaching it with good intentions, right? They were trying to (laughs) gaslight people into thinking that this was going to be like an easy process. Um, But in reality, what's actually more empowering is a message that's kind of more like, hey, like this is a massive change. And we have confidence that at the end of the day, it's going to yield huge benefits. It's going to benefit everybody. But we acknowledge that this is hard. And we acknowledge that, like, we're not going to get it right off of, like, you know, version 1.0, right? Like, there's going to be, like, some bumps in the road, right? And it's going to create some pain in the short term. And we thank you in advance for supporting us through that pain. Your feedback is invaluable. Like, we need you to help it be less painful. Um, And so we're engaging. And recruiting you to kind of join the cause. Uh, But like that resonates, I think, a lot more when you're just honest with people about the fact that it's not gonna be sunshine and rainbows, right? And we know that it's hard and we know that we're in some ways doing this to you and we're grateful for your resilience, right? And to the extent that, to your point, Skylar, that you still have reservations that you want voiced. We have forums for that, too. We are not scared of your feedback. We are not afraid of your emotions. We understand that it is a natural part of doing business, of interacting as human beings, honestly.
1: Yeah, I mean, you're totally right that the way that the leadership approach, it was like, there is no failure. I I think I remember slides being like this, there is, (laughs) failure is not an option. was probably written on the slide. (laughs) And so it was, they they definitely did not give any uh, indication or time to the employees to kind of wrap their heads around it. Do you have a change management story? that I do. I, I have
0: one that I prepared for you ahead of time, but I want to tell you a funny story because you just triggered it in me right now. This happens frequently when we podcast together. Skylar, I just kind of go off script. Okay. So I was I was in a meeting this is a change management story in and of itself, where we were trying to do a platform migration. So I was at a company where um, we had built one version of the platform. Like there were fundamental things about the back end of that platform that were like no longer kind of meeting our use case. And so we needed to retool the whole platform and migrate all of our user data over to the new platform. And it had taken us years to migrate like, 3% of users from one, one platform to another. And, um, and so we kind of like rallied the troops and one of our senior leaders, a C-level leader came in and basically said, Hey, you know, that thing we've been trying to do for like years, Um, we're going to migrate the remaining 97% of users over within 30 days. Actually, he said within two weeks initially, (laughs) And then we convinced them that wasn't possible. And then it was like 30 days. Uh, that seems which still totally,
1: totally reasonable.
0: <laughs> it, it still wasn't possible. Like we were all like, okay, well, at least 30 days, like, you know, is double the amount of time he was going to give us. But it's like, we're still going to be coming back to him in 30 days, telling him the exact same reasons why we think this thing is impossible. Right. And um, so at the like two week checkpoint, he's checking in. And um, he's like, how are we doing? We're like, look, we're scoping this migration project. It's not looking any easier. In fact, it's looking a lot worse than what we initially thought. Like we have a whole new understanding for the complexity of this migration. Like we're thinking it's going to be at least four months before we can like resolve this, even to just like a minimum viable product perspective. And so he takes out his laptop and he, um, and he plays us a video of, um, Apollo 13. And there's a scene in Apollo 13 where they're trying to get the crew back. And like one of the guys in the Houston command center says failure is not an option. And like, that was his punchline is like, guys, I hear that you're telling me that this can't be done in this amount of time, but failure is not an option. Let's bring our people home. And, um, and I was like, look, Apollo 13 is a great movie. (laughs) Like I get that sentiment, like I really do. (laughs) Um, But also it's like, you're not listening, right? It's like you've created a forum ostensibly to hear like the objections and challenges that we are having. And we are trying to inform you to the best of our ability, you know, what a more reasonable timeline is for this migration. And yet you're just meeting us by completely ignoring, not just, the emotional side where we're like we know we are going to fail at this we know we are not going to hit this deadline we know that hitting this deadline would be irresponsible because we'd have to cut way too many corners in order to do it and instead of acknowledging and engaging with that the answer was failure is not an option watch this clip from apollo 13 i'll see you guys later you know? And, um, that's a great example of how not to lead through change management and how not to engage the elephant. Um, but that's not the main story. Okay. So the main story I wanted to tell you, um, (laughs) was actually a story, uh, of a time where things I think did go really well. Um, and so I've, I've told parts of this story before on the podcast, but, um, there was a time in my career where I was leading a large um, operations center for a tech-enabled fashion retailer. And I've I've mentioned before, this is one of the best jobs I've ever had, really great culture. One of the things that made the culture so great was, so I was hired to run their Austin-based operations center. And the first day that I walked into their operations center, it's a call center essentially, but they weren't taking calls. They, it was basically like email support was what, most of the head count was doing there. Um. And I walked into the office and it's this gorgeous building in downtown Austin. And when you look at like the interior design of the place, it looks like they hired an interior designer from like West Elm to like come in and like fully furnish the place, paint the walls, put art everywhere. It was gorgeous, like a beautiful place to be. Right. And there were like chaise lounges and couches and armchairs, like all throughout the building. And you would, you would see these, you know, customer service representatives. Um, Like, you know, answering, you know, like our clients very casually, like on the couches and just like everybody seemed like really happy and light and airy. Um, And there were like free snacks. It was like the peak of like, you know, that whole like startup perks kind of environment. I'd never seen anything like it. Like most times, like I don't know how many people have been into a contact center, but like most contact centers are really, it's very clear that they're cost centers, right? Like there's like gray walls of broken dreams, like cubicles like all, all around the floor. I was right? going to say like, that is
1: not my experience of being in a call center. It was like dark windows. I, there's no light coming in. It's like a casino basically. Like they won't let you even look at the outside world in case you run oh away. Oh my god, Skylar. <laughs>
0: I mean like we've seen some gnarly stuff, Skylar, like as we went like across the world like in like uh, sourcing contact centers together. Like there was there were definitely some gnarly kind of like working conditions. But yeah, it's really like cram as many people as close together as possible. You're not allowed to leave your desk during work hours. Um, and and it's like, you know, dim and artificial lighting. And it's like, it's really just kind of like a, you know, like a, what's it called? I don't want to say a sweatshop, but like a sweatshop, you know, it's like, let's crank as much productivity out of you as we possibly can. This was not that, um, which was just a great, Um, indication of their overall culture. Um, And so I joined this company about a year before they had planned to go public. And, um, and as part of getting ready to go public, one of the things that we had realized is because we're delivering fashion through a tech platform, relationship was really important. We didn't have like sales representatives on the floor that would like help you make your personalized buying decisions, right? Like all of those engagements were virtual, right? And so we really needed a higher touch service model to make our customer relationship stickier, to encourage people to continue to do business with us. And email just wasn't cutting it. It's like very non-responsive. It would take several hours like to kind of go back and forth, you know, multi-touch conversations were really really frustrating. You couldn't really read into tone of voice inflection and stuff like that. Um, And so we decided that one of the things that we could do to increase the effectiveness and efficiency of our service model was to implement multi-channel support, which meant adding phones and chat communications to our mix. So not just email anymore. And, um, And so that's a big change right? Um, Especially considering that the composition of my team at the time were mainly like, you know, younger millennials and, you know, some Gen Z who've grown up in a world where telephone as a method of communication had been like really de-emphasized, right? So I'm dating myself, right? But I grew up in a time before mobile phones were prevalent. I had them in college, right? But like up until college, like I had to pick up the phone to do a lot of basic stuff that can right now be done over text or on the web or through an app. And so I have a degree of comfort with the phone and my generation has a degree of comfort with the phone that is not as common for these younger generations. Um, And so as a result, since not a lot of them had a lot of experience with it, a lot of them had a lot of fear about talking to somebody in a live setting because there's nowhere to hide, right? Like with an email, it's like if you get an email with a customer who's like pissed or a really sticky situation, you can take some time to like craft a message, do your research, phone a friend, you know, and like figure out how to respond well to that. But, um, but not so on the phone, like on the phone, if somebody rails into you, you don't really have a lot of options to like exit that situation. And so a lot of people were scared, um, about making that, making that jump and learning that new skill. Um, and, uh, and so the classic way that you know a lot of managers would look at kind of inoculating against those objections is by just paying more money for the job that is less desirable or harder, right? Um, but the company I work for, also a very good thing about this company, but was hard for me to navigate, was they they really believed in pay transparency and pay equality. And the way that they did that was everybody in the same job grade. Got the same, or not job grade, but the same job grade within the same job family, got the same compensation, and there was no variation, right? So if you are a customer care person, level one, you know, you get paid X amount of dollars, and everybody who is at that same level gets paid that same amount of money, right? and um and they they do like adjustments if like inflation happened but it would be across the board in jo- adjustments not any one individual right and so so i went to go get the job graded and tried to shoot for like a higher job grade but in working with hr um it didn't qualify as a higher job grade it was technically within the same parameters as the rest of the job so i had no compensation to give, right? To kind of entice people to join this team. But I needed a team of like 10% of like 10% of my agents needed to become these multi-channel agents in order to meet our forecasted demand. So like, how was I going to do that? Right. How was I going to incentivize this group, like 10% of this workforce, most of whom were terrified of the phones and terrified of synchronous communication to do this thing? Well, it all came down to change management. And honestly, most of our strategy came down to engaging the elephant, right? Engaging the emotions. So the first thing that we did was we made an announcement that this change was coming. And we told people, like, this is what we're thinking. We did it in an all-hands environment. We took a QA. and a And every week, I had something called office hours, where I would block off multiple hours on my schedule. It'd be public to the entire operations center. And I'd sit in an office and I'd just say like, look, no agenda, anything you want to say, any feedback you want to give, any concerns that you have, just come in and let's chat. And while we were launching this, like my managers, they reported to me, were like, I don't know that anybody's going to come, Scott. (laughs) And I was like, well, maybe I'll entice them with like donuts or cookies or something. And I did. But tons of people came. Like we would have like 10, 15 people like per session and I was like really encouraged, but I was like hearing about like all of their perspectives, like what they were concerned about, but they had a forum to like talk about that stuff. Um, And then like once we started actually launching you know the the program we went on this full pr campaign because we basically said look in order to do this job for successfully you're going to need to master the art of conversations right we're not just going to put you on the phones and expect that you're going to intuitively know how to navigate a phone call there's actually a structure that is optimal for navigating a phone call and then for dealing with objections if they end up coming up and because of that, you're going to feel in control. You're not going to feel as scared like it is going to be a skill set where regardless of the situation, you are going to know what to do next. And it doesn't just apply to the job that you do for us. It applies elsewhere in your life. If you are a master of conversations, you can handle other high pressure conversations in ways that feel more seamless, like buying a car, for example, and buying your first house and a lot of these people were kind of at the stage where they were looking at making those big purchases in their lives. And so we really appealed to the intrinsic motivations, right? Because we didn't have money to throw at them. We're like, look, if you care about your own self-development and you want to develop these skills elsewhere in your life, what better way to do that and demonstrate that than to lean into this process with us? right? And furthermore, we're going to put you on a pilot team, right? Like if you're on the pilot team, you, we will be pulsing you for your feedback consistently. And we are going to be using your input to make changes that better serve everybody else as we continue to iterate this process. Right. And then in addition to that, like, um, we ended up like buying just sweatshirts for this team. And like, they walked around like really proudly with them and said like multi-channel customer experience. Right. And it worked almost too well because people were like super jealous. They're like, why does this team get all this stuff? And it's like, well, because you know, they, they're leaning into the process. They're facing their fears. They're taking on like more uncertainty, you know, in order to advance their self-development, but also kind of like advance, our organization and like what it is that we're hoping to accomplish. Right. And then like, as we continue to grow and formalize and we got out of the pilot stage and we extended formal offers for people to join the team permanently, we continued to reinforce that through communications to the floor, through our all hands meeting, through my office hours. Right. And And like the long story short is we made this massive transformation, you know, and we got, we funded this team through a hundred percent volunteers because we so effectively engaged their intrinsic motivations, their why we tied it to what's in it for them. And it wasn't everybody's cup of tea, right? Like we didn't have, you know, people knocking down the door to say like, I want to join the multi-channel team right? But we didn't need to. We only needed like 10% of those leaders, those future leaders, to really kind of like take that first step. And a lot of the multi-channel team actually did go on to do increasingly more senior level things, both within the company and in subsequent companies, um, because they were challenged to like take control of their own development. Um, But yeah, so I think like that is... That's a story from my past that I look on fondly because at the time, Skylar, I was like, I don't know if I can do this. Like, (laughs) because like I had none of the forcing function tools that I used to have when I was leading through change management. Right. Because all the other change management things I had done in the past, like I could compensate for things that were, you know, more difficult or, you know, um, or we had, like, you know, people already identified to take on the more difficult roles. And in this one, it was really a straight emotions play. Um, I don't want to call it a play. I, I want to, like, we considered the emotions first and foremost. And because of that, it was successful.
1: Yeah, I think it would be extremely difficult to not have some type of incentive incentivizing factors when you're saying okay here literally get on the phone and like you said get yelled at because that is what (laughs) happens to customer support agents I have been there Uh, and it is very difficult so I love that your story gave people the time to process the change the airspace to have their feelings and then kind of the opt-in of like this is this is the change Like everybody who is on board with it, here are some benefits and incentives and everybody who's not like, it's okay. Like we're, we're going to slowly get there. And I think also the, the big takeaway is that you, you need to do swag, right? You know, like you can't have bad swag on during a transition. I mean,
0: (laughs) we had to do something because, you know, like I said, the chaise lounges and the armchairs, it's like all the agents that stayed on email only got those fringe kind of perks and they were paid the same as the phone agents and the multi-channel agents who um, essentially had to be somewhat tethered to their desks. You know, um, you couldn't really kind of wander around as much in addition to the contact types being just harder. Right. And, um, but that, the allure of the comfort of that, you know um that resonated with some people but what we really targeted is the people who are like actually you know more than my own personal comfort i value the accumulation of new skills and abilities right and we really positioned it in a way to kind of speak to that and if you've ever met people who are really hardcore about self development it almost always involves some kind of de-emphasis of your own comfort, right? Because self-development is uncomfortable, right? Like the maximum in comfort is just staying exactly where you are, right? But like, if you're going to pick up any new skills, if you're going to explore any new opportunities, you have to be uncomfortable, Um, but it has to be worth it. You have to have conviction that the thing that you are sacrificing your comfort for is ultimately worth it. And that I think is what we did well. Um, in this uh, in this case study is um, is we got people to forsake their comfort in the name of self-development.
1: I love that. And I thank you for setting up a good transition because I wanted to talk about how to actually make change management, how to actually make change management better. And it sounds like you had a really good story, but I, I think the first thing I wanted to touch on was that if the change is sh- completely shocking to your organization, you're probably not listening enough to your employees. Like <laughs> if they don't feel the change or the strategic change in the, in the company coming, um, then they're probably not focused right on the right business objectives in the first place. And I think employees can sense change. And so like if you're, if it's like, oh my gosh, this is totally out of the blue. It's like, that means there's a huge communication problem within your organization. The second point it's I wanted to say, oh, go ahead.
0: Oh, just saying that's such a good point. That's such a good point. I think that, um, I think that leaders often forget how intuitive their employees actually are, right? It's like your employees are watching. They have their feelers out like a hundred percent of the time. Right. And it's like, and there hasn't been a single major change that I have been privy to where it hasn't been at least suspected like broadly, right? Like we think that we have containment over these things, but there's so much about the way that we move and talk and communicate that kind of betrays like our, you know, our secrecy. Um, And so it's like, so why, like, and that's why it's like, look, secrecy has a place, but I do think that like, erring on the side of transparency is probably the better solution in most cases. You know, I've been, I've had a mantra as a leader. I may have told you this Skylar while we were working together all those years back, but I have this mantra as a leader where I often err on the side of transparency, even to the point where I'm not sure if it's like smart, (laughs) but it like, it is, Very rarely, I don't even think it ever has really kind of like come back to bite me in the ass, right? Like, because I do think that people appreciate, especially if you do it correctly, like people appreciate the honesty and they appreciate the extra time to get their heads in the right place, right? And it makes them feel like they have more control or agency over what's coming next, Right. So anyway, those are those are my contributions to uh to what you just said.
1: Yeah. I like you said, I I've I've been in the executive rooms where they are talking about changes coming up and they're like, Oh, let's just spring it on people. And it's like, no, you, you kind of have to like drop some hints throughout, you know, all hands and, and just like showing, you know, even like the balance sheet and be like, Hey guys, this is our financial situation. And then you know, maybe the budget cuts aren't that shocking because it's like, look at look at where we are and like we're all in this together. So like, let's figure out how we can carry forward. Um, I think the other big thing with change is that usually the leadership puts this huge big vision in front of people like, Oh, this is the vision that we're going for in the future. And then they don't put in any short term wins for people to accomplish. So they like the change seems Mm. so overwhelming to the employees that they're like, I don't even know how to get there. And probably for like your uh, customer support agents, like going from chat to phone is a really big jump. And like it is because you actually have to talk to somebody on the phone. And like you said, millennials (laughs) and Gen Z are not used to that. And so I think putting in some short-term wins of like, oh, you know, like we're just going to get on one conversation or we'll, we'll do a chat, you know, live instead of email and like just putting in really quick wins for them to accomplish, to feel good about the change going forward is good too.
0: I love that. Yeah. I, it's absolutely vital, Skylar, honestly. And that's one of the things that Chip and Dan Heath talk about in their book, Switch, that I was talking about earlier is, but they call it like, um, highlighting the bright spots, right? Which is like, okay, so we've outlined this change. We've given you the thesis for why the change is necessary. But rather than just drop the ball there and say, okay, go do the thing now, right? Like you need to shine a spotlight on the people who are doing those things well, right? Typically at the ground level, right? And you need to kind of put it on a pedestal. So like with the multi-channel team that I was talking about earlier, Part of why the hoodies were so effective is it was a piece of us putting them on a pedestal and saying like, look at these guys, right? Like they have set themselves apart. They have sacrificed their own comfort, right? They have leaned into the risk and that's admirable, And they're doing it not only for the betterment of themselves, but for the betterment of how we serve our clients and for the betterment of the company. Um, So good on them for having the courage and strength to do those things. And then we were very intentional in future all hands meetings to make sure that we were telling at least one success story from the multi-channel team and how the presence of that new service channels was leading to better outcomes than we could ever facilitate through an email only service model. Right. And so, because of that, you really kind of reinforce you know, the virtue of the people who are helping you drive the change. You're not just patting yourself on the back as a leader for thinking of the change. Cause like that's not the hard work. The hard work is the middle managers, the line managers who have to connect purpose to action. They have to say, okay, this is the vision that our execs have set out. These are the actions that you guys are going to do. And I want you to know that we see you right and then the people who are ultimately doing the hardest work are the people on the front lines who are having to execute the change and how often when we implement a huge change do we just completely freaking ignore like the people who are doing most of the heavy lifting you know and then we wonder why aren't we winning hearts and minds why are people complaining man our people must just be so disgruntled they need a training on how to be more resilient in the workplace and it's like maybe you need to look in the mirror first, you know, and, you know, and that would be a great place to start. All right. Well, sorry to end this conversation abruptly. Um, but Skylar and I recorded the entire episode and realized that there was a ton of content to get through. And so what we're going to do is split this into a two part series. So we're going to end the conversation here for today and pick the conversation back up next week where Skylar and I will be discussing specific things that companies can do to prepare better for change management at the organizational level, the managerial level, and at the individual level. You're not going to want to miss it. We hope to see you next week.